0: Welcome to ML Live, a podcast by Neptune AI.
1: We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production, machine learning, and MLOps.
0: Tune in to get real life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. All right. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to another episode of MLOps Live. My name is Sabine. I'm joined by my co-host Steven. Hi, Steven.
1: Hey, Sabine. How you doing? (laughs)
0: Hey, doing great. And with us today, we have Mateusz Opala, who is going to be answering questions about leveraging unlabeled image data with self supervised learning or pseudo labeling. Welcome, Mateusz.
2: Hello, everyone. Happy to be here.
0: Hey, it's great to have you. So Mateusz has held a number of like leading machine learning positions at companies like NetGuru and Brainly. So Mateusz, you have a background in computer science, but how did you get more into the machine learning side of things?
2: Yeah, so it all started on my sophomore year at university. One of my professors kind of told me about that Andrew NG was doing his first iteration of the famous course on machine learning on Coursera. And I kind of started from there, then did bachelor thesis on deep unsupervised learning and went to Siemens to work in deep learning. And then all my positions were uh, strictly about machine learning.
0: And you've been on that path ever since.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I worked for some time before as a backend engineer. But for most of the time in my career, I was a machine learning engineer slash data scientist.
0: So, Mateusz, to warm you up, how would you explain to us pseudo labeling in one minute?
2: Okay, let's try. So, imagine that we're having uh, lots of data, and just small amount of data is labeled, and most of that data is unlabeled. So, and we want to train our favorite neural network. Let's call it ResNet fifty. And in simplification, we train the model on a batch of labeled data. And then with that model, we predict labels on batch of unlabeled data. We use the predicted labels as the targets to calculate loss function of unlabeled data. And we combine the loss from labels and unlabeled data to backpropagate through the network and update weights. And this way, we uh, leverage the unlabeled data in the training regime. Was it one minute or longer?
0: Yeah nice job. I think that definitely fit inside <laughs> inside one minute.
2: I can give you one analogy to the computer science development process, how one could think about, about this. So let's say we have a software development team and there are a few senior engineers and bunch of mid-junior engineers. And senior engineers produce better code quality, obviously, than juniors or mids. But you You can hire just a limited number of senior engineers and and you need to, and you also want to grow the mid and juniors. So you need to kind of construct team of both and make it efficient. So if you invest into code reviews and best practices testing automated CA and CD, then junior engineers are also able to deliver codes to production as well. So you can think that senior engineers are the label data here, and the junior engineers refer to the unlabeled, to the pseudo labeled ones. And investing into the code review is like scaling the loss function. So at the beginning of training, you need to invest more. So actually, you care more about the label data. But once the network starts to make good predictions, you also benefit from the unlabeled data. So from the, from the junior and mid-engineers when you're uh, development practices are very solid.
0: All right. Thank you for that analogy. I'm sure this will prime everyone's minds nicely for, for any questions. So once again, welcome, everyone. Have fun. And uh, over to you, Stephen.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Matthias. And uh, of course, as you mentioned, you're currently in Brainly as a senior machine learning engineer, and uh, I sort of presume as we will get to know, of course, that's where most of these applications are, you know, coming. And I'd love to know, can you walk us through some of the different use cases where you apply the labeling for image data in, you know, Brainly? Some of the products I know, Snap to Solve is one of the products that probably uses
2: it. Well, you know, you probably have
1: more idea. yeah.
2: Yeah, sure. So the Snap-to-Solve is the, the feature I, my team works uh, mostly around that feature. And maybe I'll shortly explain what it's about. So basically, when you open the mobile phone, you can make a quick image of the question you would like to have answered. And then as a user, you can adjust the crop to, to select the question. And then you're routed to the uh, either text search or our Math Solver depending what's on on the on the image and you're getting the answer uh, you needed and our team works on projects like understanding what's on the image understanding the layout of question detecting the quality issues with the image so trying to inform users that they could improve uh, somehow the the image they taken to get better answer and also on the routing to the specific services that are needed for the question. So for example, if there's math, it can be, instead of just searching through the database, it can be directly solved, for example. And last year we had a project called Vice, which was about the visual content extraction. And in that project, we wanted to understand the layout of the question. And it was uh, simply an object detection model that try to predict classes like uh, table, question, image, figure, text, uh, and so on. Everything that's kind of visible on the question layout. And the thing is that, you know, you always have a limited budget for labeling. Even, even if, if you have a strong budget, a a strong company, big company, not a small startup, then then there's always limited Uh, also not about the money, but also about the time, how much time uh, can you actually wait for the labels? And at rainy we have lots of images from taken from the users. And we would really like to leverage all of that unlabeled data. And also when you want to start labeling, distribu- for the training purposes, you would like to have more or less a uh, balanced distribution. So you, you would like to have similar amount of the text boxes and the table boxes and so on, but your data is obviously very imbalanced usually, so our first Approach to reusing self-supervised learning was to actually do some um, unsupervised or semi-supervised classification to generate to uh, data for labeling to downsample the data from all of the images we had, so we could uh, label for the training purposes only, only small subset which would be still uniform. And in that project, we work on the paper called Simple Contrastive Learning. And on top of that paper, there are two frameworks for unsupervised classification called SPICE and SCAN. And simple contrastive learning uh, is basically about uh, contrasting two images with one against the other. And you do it by you taking the original image and you do the dot augmentation, perturbation of the image, and you do two perturbations of the same image. So as an input, you have different images, but you know, they're the same. And you learn the similarity of these images and As a result, you get the good embedding for that image. And based on that embeddings, having very small amount of label data, we could actually sample very well, training weak classifiers to finally obtain uh, good candidates for labeling. So that was our first uh, in our team approach to self-supervised learning. Uh, Pseudo-labeling is kind of interesting case in our situation, since in the original paper, it's the same network that trains, generates the pseudo-labels. We go a bit different way, since in our case we have multimodal inputs sometimes. So we have text and image, but not at all stages we have text. So sometimes we just need to deal with the image. However, when creating a data set and when training, we might reuse the historical historically available text. So we kind of use the uh, NLP based approach to generate pseudo label that uh, for the model that will then work in the production for the inference only on the image.
1: Awesome. Thanks. And by the way, if you want to learn how Vice works. We did a uh, we did a case study with Brainy, so I think that will probably be in the show notes for our listeners or uh, attendees. So if you want to learn how Vice works and Snap to solve, I think that will throw more lights. Now, uh, Matias, before Brainy, did you have any experience working on studio labeling? You know, and how was that for you? What applications were you doing at that time? Yeah,
2: yeah, I had. I had actually just when that paper came out. The mm. paper is, I think, from 2013. and in 2014 I worked in a small startup in Krakow. And we did small projects for small startups. And that was that s- startup that was doing smart dog collars. And the smart dog collar was equipped with sensors like accelerometer, gyroscope, uh, firmometer, and, and so on. And the goal of our machine learning system was to predict the behavior of the dog. So whether the dog is eating, drinking uh, or running. So later on, we could automatically send some tips to the dog owner that, you know, like outside there is high temperature and the dog didn't drink uh, water for a long time. So imagine uh, that getting the data from sensors is easy because you just, you know, like uh, you put that dog collar on dog, but labeling that data, that's a very difficult one. And it's funny story how we actually label that because You know, there are these people who, for the job, they take a lot of dogs out. So we just connected with uh, these people and we went with a lot of people multiple times with the dogs. And, you know, I just, we are just noting that from 210 to 15, the dog was drinking and so on. And that's not really a feasible way to gather a lot of annotations, but it was easy to gather a lot of unlabeled annotations. And since we suffered very much for overfitting... As far as I remember, we explored that pseudo labeling angle at the time, and it's uh, helped a lot to tackle the overfitting problem for that model.
1: Awesome. That's awesome. Thanks. I think someone has asked a question in the chat.
0: Yeah. Mathieu wanted to get the title link or link to the paper that was mentioned.
2: uh, The simple contrastive learning or pseudo labeling.
0: And uh, can you name an author?
2: Uh, the Pseudole Bank original paper was uh, Dongli, I think it's from 2013. Pretty sure we can add it to the notes later on.
0: Yeah, we'll make sure to add it to the show notes and I'll try to dig it up in the meantime. We have actually a question in chat from Antonin who says, Hey Mateusz, how did you choose the image augmentation to train your SSL model? Did you use the one from the paper or did you experiment to find augmentation that suited your data the best?
2: Yeah, I explored uh, from the, I started with exploring the data augmentations from the paper. So exactly the scheme, but I also tried different kinds of augmentations. And I remember that the setup slightly different for us, since uh, our domain is really different actually than, than ImageNet. So it's reasonable that something different. So for example, we don't do flipping because you shouldn't flip the text, at least not in English, but uh, I explored uh, I used Nvidia DAI for the data augmentations on GPU so pretty much I explored all the typical augmentations that are in that library and I know that for example in the augmentations, there are much more to be explored but it's slower so so usually I stick to the Nvidia DALI one Awesome thanks
1: uh, yeah and, and speaking of the speaking of the challenges I would sort of want to know what are challenges you sort of encountered when you were applying, say, self-service learning or, you know, pseudo-labeling in your applications in Brainy?
2: Sure. So with the simple contrastive learning, so this algorithm that requires really lots of data and even one million images, I think it's not really easy to train that algorithm. And obviously at Brainy, we have more and we can train on more amounts of data but also training takes a lot of time and projects has its constraints and finally we ended up that the pre-trained embeddings on the simple contrastive learning weren't really much better than just the pre-trained on ImageNet, and it was more about uh through so that task of choosing the candidates for labeling the most important part was actually Trying something simple like support vector machines on the pre trained embeddings and retuning them with Bayesian optimization for hyperparameter search. And that worked well for the most difficult cases. So, in general, for tuning the simple contrastive learning, I think it requires uh, very much computational power, a good uh, way to distribute the algorithms. And also, it requires pretty much big batch sizes from what I remember the paper. They trained it originally on the bunch of TPUs. And the paper is, I think, from Google also. So it's not as easy to reproduce everything that's on the TPUs with the size of uh, which you are constrained, for example, on the GPUs sometimes, in terms of the memory size and the batch size. So these are challenges I, f- I see there. In terms of pseudo labeling, it's kind of different. So usually you have a very small label data set. And if it's too small to learn the underlying cluster structure that can separate so well, noisy, but well, uh, the initial examples, you just adding noise to, to your data when you're adding the more and more unlabeled loss coefficient, when you increase that. The first problem could be a small label data set. The next one is. So when you do the pseudo label bank you have that loss function that is weighted combination of the loss from labeled data and loss f- from the from the unlabeled data and usually you start with the zero loss from the unlabeled data and you would like to warm up your your network on the labeled data and you could start uh, increasing the loss function from the unlabeled too fast for example and it would uh, not you know like before it actually learns the, the cluster structure, also in neural networks there is a usually uh, there is usually phenomenon of overconfidence. So the predictions are very close to one, for example, or very close to zero, and especially when you do the pseudo labeling and the prediction obviously is sometimes incorrect, it also reinforces that phenomenon and adds even more noise to data. And there is something called like confirmation bias then. And you need some techniques to to tackle that. Usually it's done by applying mix-up strategy. So it's a strong data augmentation uh, combined with label smoothing for regularization purposes. And that's something that uh, can mitigate that confirmation bias. Awesome, thanks Thanks for, for sharing that. And I'm still wondering, because
1: in this case, you were talking about you applying it. Is this particular sort of application something that like a small team can Apply or requires you know in terms of like resources you know just can you walk us through you know how tedious this will be for a small team to start applying this you know especially when they have smaller data because this is where it's more relevant right where they don't have Google size data sets
2: yeah so I would say that techniques like simple contrastive learning which in general self supervised techniques they usually require a lot of computation a lot of GPUs and that's definitely difficult for the small team or just individual working on if has no access to the proper infrastructure for that. So I don't think that these techniques are the best for the small teams. Probably the pre-trained models still work better. Also the, the models that are trained self-supervised also are sometimes published. And there is actually a great library on the MIT license from Facebook on self-supervised learning. It's very easy to reuse and it's built on top of PyTorch. But the pseudo labeling, it's something that's very easy to implement. And it can be really useful for fighting or overfitting and regularizing your network and making it work when you have uh, a smaller data set. And and when applying that, have you particularly seeing common
1: mistakes that, you know, teams would make when trying to apply pseudo labeling or maybe even going for then you know, trying to apply self-supervised learning techniques for the systems?
2: Yeah, so typical problem in the pseudo-lab bank is when your small amount of data is not enough to satisfy the cluster assumptions. So there is assumption that the data can is separated well the, the, and, and the decision boundaries in the low density regions. So it's basically that idea that's The images that are close to each other and they are in similar cluster, in same cluster they share the same label and if you don't have enough data to learn quickly underlying cluster structure not maybe optimal but but good enough for this pseudo labeling then you end up with just adding noise to the data also you might do everything well but uh, your initial small data set might be inconsistent and inconsistency in labeling is something that's hugely influences the, the quality of bank training at all. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so
1: wondering, because I'm going to come back to the use case of Brainy now, because what Snap to Solve is one of those problems that enthuses me a lot. And I want to know, did you try out some other techniques, you know, before the, the self supervised learning technique or, you know, you just know that, okay, this particular technique is one that we feel works. And then you just applied it straight away. Or how does it stack up with uh, against other techniques pretty much?
2: So, in general, most of the techniques we use is still supervised learning, just and we label data, but it's limited and it's time consuming. And the best use case for us for applying self supervised learning is when we want to downsample from, you know, like all of the data we have for the labeling. So, we make sure that we actually want to make sure that. We have different kinds of data in that labeling, and we also cover all interesting cases for us. So we might not have 50-50 distribution of handwriting and the images of the textbooks. It might be on some markets, it might be, you know, like more handwriting and on some markets, it might be just a little of handwriting. But at the end for the training, it's best if we have the data as. You know, like it's, uh, it also contains the handwriting and contains different kinds of data so we can uh, handle it better and it generalizes better. So we came up with the self-supervised learning for kind of clustering or unsupervised image classification purposes. And then uh, and there are these cases that I mentioned that we have the text and the images. And specifically, you can imagine the use case, which is not true use case, but you can imagine that. That we have an image the one f- with some text not like the question like in brain but like in general you have some banners from the shop generally there is image and there is text and let's imagine that you have some method to generate text from the image and so you have your data you have image and text and the text says that there's a you know like shop 24 hours and there is an image of that shop actually and what we would like to do it's to generate the pseudo label for the image based on the text to understand whether it's, for example, a shop or a stadium, and we can leverage then some NLP model. We can reuse BERT or anything like that to to do fine tuning. We can do the zero-shot learning things and so on to generate the labels. And we treat, we can treat them like smooth labels and then just train the model solely on the images. So currently the most interest to us is how we can reuse the modalities that are not available during the inference, but to reuse them to generate the labels so we don't need to label everything.
0: Feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30-second pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so we help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app. You can organize and display it however you want, search, debug, and compare experiments, data sets, and models, save your production ready models to a centralized registry, and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to Neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show.
1: Right. Thanks a lot. And you know, you mentioned one thing earlier, and you know, you talked about um pseudo-labelling being this particular technique to use so overcome this or battle this overfitting and stuff like that. So how did you achieve that in your use case in Braille? Did you have a scenario where, you know, can you give us specific details on, or details on the scenario where you were battling overfitting and then, you know, studio rebelling was like, came to the rescue at that point.
2: So in the times of overfitting, my use case was more or less in in the past experience that uh, the one with dog collars and also uh, more with the NLP, NLP use cases. At Brainy, we have currently one use case where we are exploring pseudo-labeling uh, possibility to apply. And basically, the, the reason behind we are tackling with overfitting is that the task that we we are solving is very subjective to define, and we struggle with labeling consistency. And uh, also, we don't have a good, weak classifier, so we need to handle some of the class imbalance uh, where we have not so much images on the class we want to detect. So that's a great case actually for the semi-supervised learning techniques and pseudo-labeling where, where we need to leverage all that unlabeled data.
1: Cool. And, uh, I'll just zoom in into this particular one is, uh, you're doing this, you're using pseudo-labeling and so forth, but at some point you hit this roadblock, right? What do you do? How do you think about enhancing, you know, this technique you're using, or do you just explore other techniques? Because, you know, you talked about smaller data sets being a major challenge with using Studio Libelon. You know, how do you enhance your, the quality of your data sets? Do you consider maybe synthetic data sets or, you know, yeah. Can you walk us through that?
2: Yeah, so we try to be creative with the way with the we way how we create data sets. So we don't need really to, you know, like recreate data like images because we have so many images it's better for us for example if we are having a label for an image it's better to search for a similar images we have some pre-trained embedding for similarity like simple contrastive learning and we find if we find similar images we can mark them you know like as having the same label that's one thing the other thing which i like it's also usually people think about data augmentation as the augmentation of images or text basically not the targets but but the inputs right but a few years before i was doing pose detection and it was also time consuming to label uh, the pose of human since you you need to label like 12 body joints or something like that and we struggled also with overfitting. And we had that idea that, you know, like if you label the body joint of a pose and you move your label of the body joint just, you know, a couple of pixels, it's basically the same labeling since you're just labeling whole head with single point. And we did uh, a target augmentation. Uh, and similarly, you can think on the data augmentation that we're trying to do at Brainy sometimes, that we try to... Change input images uh, so they reflect a different target that we lack, actually, and that's also the way how to creatively create increase the download of images in data sets. At the end of the day, it's best just to, to label your images, but and sometimes so that's what actually I'm just doing personally. I'm just labeling more images to improve my model performance or improve my uh, method for sampling more data. But it's uh, important to be very creative in the creation of the data set. And I believe that creation of the data set in the production, like environments, like in the commercial setting is, is very important, even more important than, than the training. I think Brainy approach to the machine learning is very data centric approach. And we try to build of our software the way that uh, if, if we just uh, change, uh, if we need to change the data set, we can rerun everything and quickly have the same. Quickly have the updated model on the new data set on production. So I really believe that being creative and putting emphasis on on data set creation is is very important. Awesome, thanks. And beyond
1: the data set problem, have you found circumstances where you know some issues kind of uh, affect the efficacy of uh, your pseudo labeling for your image tests?
2: Beyond the data set problem, so so I would say that the typically like connected to the training issue is the overconfidence of the neural network predictions and that's something that it's that's very hard to tackle Uh, and that's the thing with the confirmation bias and you can do the the mix-up strategies and so on but at the end of the day it's very difficult we actually like to understand our predictions whether they make sense we use also the uh, explainers like Shapley values or or the older like lime, but they're not necessarily always working well with the images. Sometimes they do, sometimes they not. And the overconfidence of the neural networks. Even if you're good, if you have a good metrics like on test set on the validation set for your task, whether it's precision, recall, F1, whatever, it's still not great. If if you see that your predictions are very overconfident, something might be wrong there. And it definitely influences the uh, ability of, you know, like reusing pseudo labels well.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. And I, I think there's this particular—I don't know how common is it—but it's kind of like, you know, cluster assumption is a necessary condition for pseudo labeling to work. And what do you make of that as that particular phrase itself?
2: Yeah. so, so the cluster assumption basically says that the data. When classified, it should be formed in the separate clusters, and the decision boundary. So when you think like similar like in SVM scenario, decision boundary, mm-hmm. boundary needs to be in the low region density. And so what they did in the original paper actually, that was a very interesting uh, experiment on pseudo labeling. So they trained on on MNIST dataset, the well known one. But some experiments were later on reproduced on the CIFAR and so on. So it's not only MNIST setting, but on MNIST uh, they trained the model. And they visualize the prediction with t s n e using t s n e for dimensionality reduction on the plane on the two d plane, and actually the separation of the prediction when it's trained in purely supervised manner it's not that great and uh, like when you use pseudo labels and when you use pseudo labels, the clusters are clearly pushed from from ourselves, so there is clear you know a clear boundary between the clusters and that shows that the entropy regularization which is simply a pseudo-ebellion loss function, is simply regularizing entropy uh, regularization which means that we're trying to decrease overlap of classes. And at the end, when you visualize, it's indeed decreased and, and the classes and the clusters of classes are really separated. Perfect. Perfect.
1: And in terms of, uh, the, the biases that are there, have you found that this sort of reinforces some system biases beyond the confirmation bias as well, especially in the social bias learning or using pseudo labeling, have you found, uh, you know, the, are ethical issues with using that and,
2: you know, if there are, you know, maybe you can let us know? I think that I think issues are, you know, like they are somehow inherited from the, from the data set you're using. So. I don't think it's influenced more by the model or the technique of the model. So, if the biases are in the data set, they will be reproduced by the model. If you want to debias uh, your model, you, you need to debias your data set. Awesome. Awesome. And
1: speaking of data sets as well, of course, we spoke about small teams earlier being these people that have. Uh, access to labelled data sets. And of course, we have lots of unlabeled data sets out there, and th- those are most likely inexpensive to get. So how can they find this balance, especially if it's very crucial for their use case? How can they find this balance between, they have this small labelled data sets, but there's a large, a large uh, amount of on Im- uh, label data sets out there, and they have to use this particular technique. How would you advise that they go about finding that balance and applying pseudo labelling properly, or even on self-supervised logic? Yeah.
2: So I would advise to, you know, like, you need to consider obviously what kind of infrastructure you have, what kind of you know like how much data you actually can train on, what kind of resolution of data for your problem, uh, and what kind of what time do you have for that, and whether it's uh, you know like whether you're paying like for the cloud or it's somewhere in your house you have just that you know, your only constraint is the size of the of the GPU and and the time of the training. But when you consider that all of that, I would just start with the smallest data set label data set that is actually training something so it's not working like flipping a coin but it's actually training and i would try to as early as possible visualize that to see whether indeed there are some clusters created of your classes in the in the data set whether they make sense and if they do start making sense then there's you know like that part when you can add unlabeled data so In the original setting, it's done simultaneously, that you're training on the labeled and unlabeled data, but obviously you can just start with only a small amount of labeled data, uh, see whether it performs just a bit, see whether the visualization makes sense, and then you can do the two-stage training when you figure out that uh, that's enough data. And if your data is uh, not enough and you don't see any clusters and it's not training, then you simply need to label more at the beginning. And once you're there then you can uh, start adding up the unlabeled data you can you know like just start from the beginning your training uh, procedure in and try to make it simultaneously but even if you're training simultaneously you just start with the training unlabeled part and the coefficient for unlabeled loss it's the way that it's zero at the beginning and then increases linearly at, until it gets to the to the final value and you're still training for some time. Perfect, perfect. And uh, I believe that
1: quite a lot of, you know, studio level and learning, self-supervised learners actively in research, right? And are there sort of, you know, particular situations or scenarios where these actually, you apply these techniques and then they improve like your, the robustness of your model or your model performance, whether it's at Brainy or even your previous companies, you know, because we have teams who want to share this, and hey, look, you know, we could try this, all right? But we need actual numbers to understand, you know, how it helps in sort of the real world in production. Yeah,
2: yeah. So in the this typical scenario of the pseudo labeling, when you use the labels from the training model, so in the case of the dog color thing, our model was overfitting to the way that it was really not deployable. Since even if it had, you know, like good enough performance, for example, for the classification, but the gap between the training set and the validation was huge so i wouldn't trust that model and the pseudo labeling helped in a way that the gap was limited, and the gap was small enough that you know like uh, i saw that it's not overfitting anymore it was you know like maybe it wasn't perfect metrics but it wasn't overfitting so it was started to be deployable so that definitely helps and that was in the original settings of the pseudo labeling when we used uh, the implementation from the original paper, which is very easy rather to implement in any framework, whether you use PyTorch or or TensorFlow. And already there are, you know, like lots of improvements, like to dealing that with the confirmation bias and using mix-up strategy. And also in the original paper, for example, for the pseudo labels, they do the argmax on the output of the model. So they use hard predictions and especially in the mix-up paper, they show that the hard predictions are the reasons also for the overconfidence of neural networks. And therefore, there is a uh, whole so mix-up, and or just label smoothing, which helps as a regularizer to to improve to tackle overfitting. Awesome, awesome. And I I want to come back to the the
1: compute side of things briefly. You know, are there like sort of specific architectures that you know you apply a brainy when sort of using these techniques in terms of like your computer architecture? Do you use like distributed? computation, especially in the data augmentation, which I believe is going to be distributed. how do you set up the architecture for both the data processing, which is like a huge deal as well as, you know, the training, the models
2: themselves. For most of the stuff we use uh, SageMaker, for the experiments tracking, we use Neptune. That's on more on the development side, but we track there everything like processing jobs. We try to track everything. To just you know like not uh, not miss anything during the creation of uh, data set or anything like that. In the terms of computation, we just use the SageMaker estimators and SageMaker pipelines, and like uh, they both support uh, multi GPU instances and multi actually multi node instances. So we try to also do the training just on the cluster of instances, w- which where each instance had a, a multi GPU uh, was a multi GPU instance. We use mostly PyTorch, and it supports. Uh, there is that tool called Torch Distributed, which we use just for running uh, distribution over the PyTorch. But there is also an native SageMaker uh, way to orchestrate that, so we are exploring that also currently whether it improves something or not. There is also some work to to be done, I think, in the terms of optimization how how we use this, uh, you know like in, in the typical setting is the Horovod algorithm, but they're already in the past, I had some experience with the uh, distributed algorithms that are better than a robot, for example, elastic averaging uh, stochastic gradient descent, which had actually sometimes, in some use cases, super linear uh, speed up for the training convergence. So that's something which is war- also worth exploring in that term, but also requires a bit of custom implementations.
1: That's awesome. And uh, maybe a mean super keyboard. I think. Can you walk us through that particular data infrastructure itself in place? Where do you store like all your data sets? If that's exclusive, of course, or and you know, how do you actively go about it? You know, you mentioned Nvidia DALI, which is very crucial for like augmentation, but is that the there other stack around that I could share?
2: Yeah, sure. I think I can do it in some simplified manner. So so generally we use uh we use this free on AWS for storing data sets. We have built our internal solution for data sets versioning actually since we we didn't find anything in the space that suited us well enough uh, as of now and we use that solution to to obtain data sets whenever we run the the job on the sage maker we built some of our own CLI to extract the running so actually we have the same commands and the same code for running on the local environment on the EC2, but in the you know like kind of local mode when you're connected via SSH, and that's the perfect setup for a data scientist who works in the cloud. That you know, if like you had just terminal open, you are connected via SSH, you you have that GPU just you know like in front of you to be used. I'm also running in more reproducible manner via SageMaker, so you can do that via SageMaker Estimator, or also. As a SageMaker pi- pipeline, when there are multiple steps, so typically we are running uh, more production-like training as a SageMaker pipeline. So we can have there some preprocessing of images, or or we can just have the training pushing to the model registry, which we use also on the SageMaker. When we push something to the model registry, we have some automated job there to evaluate our performance on the holdout set, and if it's alright, uh, you know, like if all metrics that you just you know like as a data scientist, you look at the run metrics on the Neptune, whether the metrics are okay, then you go to code pipeline, you approve the model and it's pushed to production automatically.
1: I know this particular field is sort of actively being researched and you know turning off papers and so forth. And uh are there particular things that you can't like actively be researched right now in self-supervised learning, you know, pseudo leveling generally, that you can't actively
2: take into production or you'd want to do that. Yeah, they are, they are. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, like you you always in that commercial setting you were kind of limited that you you need to balance between the risky, not risky things. And with in the self supervised learning is the thing, you know, like the training takes a lot of time and costs a lot. So you need to, you know, like you cannot just go put uh, grid search on the parameters and train like 100 variants of that model because it's going to cost like uh, GPT training, like two millions of dollars or something like that. So it's something that you need uh, to work carefully. But generally using that self-supervised learning approaches, it's something that we definitely want to explore at Brainy since we have lots of data. And we know that our domain of images is much different actually than ImageNet and even other domains. So, for example, from our experience in Vice project, when we are doing object detection for the question layout, we tried to reuse the label data on the medical publications, which were labeled actually already for the bunny boxes or some mathematical papers also. the problem was that that data was actually much different and uh, you know, like uh, the, the solutions which were trained on the data didn't work well. And even reusing that data for something purposes, for detecting something on our data was really random. So it just shows that deep learning at the end of the day is just training some hash maps, uh, which work very well on, on your particular use case.
0: We do have a community question from Yuri, who may have joined the discussion a bit later. He is asking, what is self-supervised? So, Mateusz, would you mind giving a bit of a summary?
2: Sure. So, uh, self-supervised, I would say that's the subset of unsupervised techniques when you don't have labels, but the self means that you use the, the self, the input image to generate the label. So, in this use case of simple contrastive learning, to generate the label, you take the image, you do the two augmentations of the same image you know that this is the same image and that's your label and if you do the augmentation of two different images and you compare to to each other then your label is that they're not the same images but basically you generate the labels from your data and you kind of train like in supervised learning but you don't have that uh, you know like annotated labels like in supervised learning but the labels are mm-hmm. generated somehow from the your inputs
0: all right thanks yuri and uh, just to kind of wrap things up here, uh, Mateusz, so from your perspective, what would you say is your biggest challenge with MLOps right now?
2: So my biggest challenge right now is connecting all these steps in the whole machine learning model lifecycle. And lots of my challenges here right now are you know, like around data set creation. So you know, like from the data versioning part where we create a lot of datasets uh, using different techniques. And that's just one stone to be done. And for creation, you also need automation like SageMaker Pipelines for training we use, you can use that, you can use SageMaker Pipelines for, for automation of dataset creation. Uh, at the same time, the labelling. So how would I know that uh, you know, I have enough data labeled, and I don't need to label more. I don't need to, you know, like label on my own more, or I don't need to pay more the freelancers uh, or MTurk to to label more. And it's enough. So, kind of automated active learning techniques could be uh, there are also to to be considered. They could be useful in automating your data set creation. So, my current challenges in a machine learning model lifecycle are mostly around data set creation. We are pretty much well organized with the training pushing to the uh, production continuous delivery of that also i, I i'm working as a uh, i'm much official machine learning engineer but uh, i work more on the data science side so so this uh, the challenges are around data sets are currently the, the most i uh challenge you know, like every day but also the production challenges for for actually detecting whether when your model uh, starts to perform worse in the absence of labels. So analyzing the predictions shift, the input shift, these are also things that I'm currently exploring.
0: Right, so I'm sure you're not going to run out of challenges to solve anytime soon.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, m- May may ask you, so in your kind of experience, you're more on a batch side, right? You're not, my feeling, you're not, addressing the serving model, right? You not externalize yeah.
1: it. Yeah. yeah.
2: The same here. Yeah. I'm looking for kind of use case, more use cases, and business requirements to serve model instead of constantly processing data. But um,
1: from a business input, it's not often use case. That would simplify or make something cheaper, but we should be business-driven.
2: Thank you.
0: All right. So Mateusz, as a kind of like final bonus question, who in the world of ML Ops would you like to take to lunch?
2: Oh, I think there are plenty of interesting people in that world. Maybe I would point Mati Zacharia from Databricks, CTO, And They are doing MLflow and, and Spark. So these are pretty interesting solutions.
0: Excellent. So uh, how can people... Follow your, like what you're doing and and connect with you maybe online, if you could share.
2: Yeah, I think it's good to connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. I think on both, it's just Matthew Opala, my handle there. So it's the best way to, to approach me on socials.
0: Great. So thank you so much, Mateusz. It was very good to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: It was very good to hear you share your very solid expertise and we will be back in two weeks on the 20th of july we'll have andy mcmahon with us and the topic will be your first mlops system what does good look like so we will see you on socials and in the mlops community slack join us there and uh, catch up with any previous episodes as usual on apple Podcasts or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we will see you very soon. Thanks again, everybody, and take care. Bye-bye.
2: So Thanks, bye. bye.
0: ML Ops Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. We run it every other Wednesday, and you can register at neptune.ai slash events.
1: And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes.
0: Thanks and see you next time.